Hello, hello, hello! Welcome to the Angry Sun Zone podcast. Today we've got a fantastic episode for you today, where we'll talk about various three-sided things. Alex, what's your favorite three-sided thing? Half of a hexagon. Half of a hexagon? I don't think that works. Are you sure? Well, where are you cutting it across? Because Listen. I'm pretty sure no matter how you do that, it's going to have more than three sides. Listen, a hexagon has six sides. I am having, I am taking half of a hexagon, therefore, three sides. But by cutting it in half, you're going to add another side. That's four. My logic was ironclad. How could you, how could you ruin my dreams? <laughs> the answer is triangle. Matt, you have the right attitude. Because today, uh, we're going to be talking about triangle strategy, or at least I am, because I have, I started playing it about 10 days ago and put about 40 hours into it, and I have finished it. So I'm going to go pretty in-depth on what I think about the game and what I think it does well, what I think it doesn't, maybe a tangent here or there. So let's get to it. Okay, wait, no, my favorite three-sided thing is uh, the faction... The factions in Red Alert 2, Yuri's Revenge. Allies, Soviets, and Yuri. Much like Red Alert 2, Yuri's Revenge, there are three main factions in Triangle Strategy. Called it. (laughs) There's the three regions, the Kingdom of Glenbrook, the Duchy of Esfrost, and the Holy State of Hizant. And each of these areas, they kind of like subscribe to a certain ideology and each of them have different things that they're kind of responsible for in the grand scheme of the world. Uh, Glenbrook has the advantage of having the only good, like hospitable land in the entire realm. So they, they're like farmers, traders and whatnot. Esfrost, they're up in the mountains. They have a bunch of iron mines so they have a you know strong military and whatever and the most interesting one is the holy state of Hyzant is in the desert and they control the sole source of the world's salt that is a powerful position it is an extremely powerful position and pretty much the entirety of this game is kind of power plays by these three different regions with what they specialize in trying to get the upper hand and the fact that one nation controls all the world's salt is like actually crazy and they have a monopoly on it and it leads to the salt iron war <laughs> are the other two uh, nations kind of salty about it oh they're if they had salt they'd be salty about it but they don't have salt that's what the war's about uh they they, they gotta wage war to be upset <laughs> the so the war happens 30 years before before the events of the actual game. It sets the backstory for the game where Esfrost and Glenbrook kind of teamed up and were like, Hyzant, give us that damn salt. They're like, nah, son. So they go to war. But there's this one independent house in Glenbrook territory called House Woolfort who allies with Hyzant and so it's kind of 2v2 for a little bit until... Peace is eventually gone, where it's just like, okay, this war is accomplishing nothing. We're going to set up NAFTA. <laughs> they literally set up something called the Norzelia Consortium, which 
Red Flag never named something a consortium. I don't think a consortium has ever done anything positive for the world. They're always scheming bastards in every type of fiction. Uh, that is basically like a neutral party to control trade of iron and salt and just kind of make the world, you know, not be monopolizing these resources. So uh, House Volfor is where your main character and his uh, posse of compad compadres hang out. Uh, the main character's name is Serenoa. And it's basically like because of their deeds in the Salt Iron War, they gained like a ton of status. They're very powerful, powerful and influential. So they have a lot of sway in what happens in specifically Glenbrook's politics, but also across the entire realm. So that's kind of the back the background of the story of the game. Now the actual like game part of the game is that this is a turn-based strategy RPG. Uh, it's got tiles, baby. Though they really fucked up because they went with score-based tiles, they didn't even go with triangular tiles. They named the game Triangle Strategy. If there's one game that I would like to see actually attempt triangular tiles, it would be this one. We got hex grids. Why not triangle grids? Missed opportunity. Absolutely. And like, yeah, I I think different types of grids is a really interesting thing to explore because like, how does that change gameplay, positioning, like targeting, all that kind of stuff? I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, the biggest biggest change in uh, the Civilization series was when they went from a square tile to a hex grid. And it, I mean, there was a lot of other changes at the same time to how combat worked, but a big reason the combat dramatically changed uh, in Civ Five as compared to Civ Four was the fact that now you're on hexes. So. Yeah. And it, like, changed things a whole heck of a lot. It's... It, is there at least a rock, paper, scissors style combat system? Uh, so no, not really. There is a rock, paper, scissors ideology system. <laughs> <laughs> Where uh, a lot of the game is you going around talking to various townsfolk and other members of your party. And you're going to be thrust into situations where you're going to be asked a question and you have three responses. And these three responses will be weighted differently towards the three ideals that the game tracks for you. Or ideologies, I should say. Because one of them is, like, idealism. So, you know, doing, you know, the doing the right thing, regardless of consequences. Uh, then there's... I mean, that that's an interesting phrasing. Like, doing the right thing regardless of consequences. If you do the right thing, but bad things happen, was it really the right thing? This game goes into that quite a bit, actually. Uh, the other... and call it consequentialism strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, so idealism is as kind of like what Glenbrook kind of embodies a lot of the time. That was, that was the, the most shaky part of it, because Glenbrook goes through so many tra transitions through the entire game, it's hard to nail them down to an ideology. But the other two nations embody the other two ideologies one of which is freedom you know the freedom to do what you can to rise yourself up by your own bootstraps man and if you have the ambition and the the wherewithal to put in the hard work you can go places so murica well i mean what murica purports to be uh and that's that's es es frost's uh 
kind of creed that they go by. And the holy state of Hyzant is equality. So they're, they're the Bernie Sanders nation in a lot of ways because they have basically like universal, universal income and food distribution and stuff. Just like everybody, if you, well, I mean, they're not really the Bernie Sanders because the condition is you have to believe in the goddess's teachings, the, 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 the religion that takes hold there. But if you do that, then, you know, you're given at least basic necessities and everybody are happy there, except for some. I'll get into that later, though. Every, everybody gets, gets food and shelter, but you gotta go to church. Yep. So, the best point of comparison I can give for this game is that it's a somewhat simplified version of the original uh, Tactics Ogre Let Us Cling Together which was released on the Super Nintendo in Japan, I believe, and only came to the uh, North America side for the PSP. Uh, that game also had, you know, some similar concepts in regards to, like, morality systems and specifically um, terrain manipulation. Uh, there's a really cool mechanic in Triangle Strategy where you can freeze tiles, set certain tiles on fire, uh, if you put out fire with ice, it'll create puddles. Or if you call down rain, it'll create puddles. And if you use lightning magic on puddles, it'll spread throughout the entire puddle. You can use wind magic to change people's orientation because facing matters in this game. So they got a lot, some interesting things there, which, um, like, I believe, like, burning away terrain and stuff like that. Like, that was in the original Tactics Over, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a very long time since I played that. But that's definitely the game that I would compare to the most. Now, in the modern day of this game, when you start the game, there's the opening of the Grand Norzelia Mine, which is supposed to be a joint project between all three nations to mine out a new source of iron in Glenbrook's territory, backed by Hyzan's finances. And it's supposed to be this big, you know, peace event, basically, for this peace treaty. And, of course... Something is discovered in the mines, they dig too deep, and that throws everything into chaos. And you, you don't find out what they find in the mines till extremely late in the game. So, schemes abound, people go around, and your group just gets caught up in everything. S. Frost invades Glenbrook, takes, the, takes over pretty much the entire thing, and you have to kind of navigate your your party and your, you know, territory's positions through all this political bullshit that's been going on by these spe specific points where you vote on what, like, route you're going to take. And the game does a great job of presenting, like, these different routes as, like, it's difficult decisions that is being presented to you. There's, like, like Alex said, like, is, is it the right answer if you do, like, the idealistic thing but bad things happen? That does happen at one point where you're like, okay, you can either choose to give up a member of your party to the enemy, or you can choose to stand and fight. Obviously, the like idealist thing is like, no, we won't surrender to this evil other nation. We're going to stand our ground and fight. Well, what happens after that is you get put into an extremely difficult, nigh unwinnable battle your first time, unless you torch the town that you're in with, like basically trap them and torch the town of, of, 
And then, you know, the residents of that town no longer have anything. They're, they're like, pretty much wiped out. So by standing your ground and protecting this one person, you affected the lives of many by, you know, burning all their stuff, stuff down. So that's... So this, so this is the trolley problem of uh, tactical RPGs. Yeah, and in those um, like dialogue choices that you get, like if you try to, you know, say the, you know, the answer that's like trying to please everybody, some people will just call you out on your bullshit. It's like that's a very safe answer, and it's just like, oh shit, <laughs> like they they do not respect me for that, and you kind of have to play into the different characters that you meet, personalities, if you want to, like, you know, impress them and whatever. Can't be able to make the tough decisions. Yeah. And one thing that's cool about all the NPCs is that pretty much everybody that's not in your party, their, like, character art looks 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 like sinister or evil. Even if, on the surface, they seem like, like pretty upstanding characters, like they seem like good people their portraits look like very sinister so the entire game is just like i don't know i can't make that judgment call like there's a lot of games where you see character art and you're like okay that guy's evil that guy's clearly evil the moment i saw seymour in final fantasy 10 yeah like that entire reveal of that character is like oh yeah fuck this guy like this guy's clearly a villain in this it's like it's really difficult to tell a lot of the time until you get into a situations where you have to fight different people according to what different routes you go through. Just purposeful misdirection based on their art. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting, like clever thing that they did there. Yeah, so with the branching paths, does it actually like affect like like is it a different storyline if you make different decisions with different endings and different battles in the actual gameplay or so this that brings me to the biggest problem i have with the game is that for the most of the game it doesn't so the different decisions will branch you off to a separate route for a couple chapters, like some stories, some battles, but it'll converge into a main thread that every choice that you do in the game will converge back to this main thread. So like the like a lot of like the really big story beats will happen kind of no matter what. Um and I've only played through one route, so I don't know if when it converges there are differences or not. But just based off of, you know, how the game's structured, I think that, like, any differences that will be that way were probably minor. Up until you get to, like, the last few chapters where you do get to, a, like, a point of no return where, like, different decisions that you make will, like, piss off different members of your party. Like, some people will just be like, no, if you go this route, like, you're going without me. Uh Though apparently there is like a secret fourth route that I was extremely close to unlocking without knowing it, but I <laughs> fucked up. Basically, I fucked up because I torched those goddamn town. That goddamn town. If if you go that route and beat that mission without torching the town, that's one of the ways to unlock it. Otherwise, you have to go the other route, give up the member of your party for temporarily, I, I assume, because they come back later, and then that, and then that's a a way to get onto that route. And 
that like fourth route is lets you keep everybody. Of course, got 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 to make a way to make everybody happy. So, yeah, it's that part really does bum me out because I really like this. Kind of sounded like my dream game upon first hearing about it. It's like turn-based tactical strategy RPG. You've you, okay. You've hooked me. You you've got the first thing out of the way, and like branching paths based on gameplay changes and stuff like that. Okay, I'm I'm liking that. But the fact that they converge just like like really annoys me. It, games don't take that chance to where okay, I'm going to design things for this game that a lot of people won't see. Because like if if for example like there are you know three choices in the game and each of them branches off to its own unique route then you're going to have like eight uh, branches at the end. After going, you know, like if, if each of the branches is two paths, you know, two of the three, that's eight paths at the end. But why do that? Why make all that content? Because you're going to end up having a large portion of that tree that people who only play through the game once won't see. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely understand from a development standpoint why very few developers decide to do something like that because you are just making so much more work for yourself. But, you know, the rare occasions when something does go and makes a whole bunch of branching paths that like just, Shadow the Hedgehog that just permanently put you in different no shut no that didn't actually do it no it, that 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 game didn't actually do that it it wanted to but they didn't because that game wanted to do a lot of things that it didn't do and actually shit yeah that particular game like i think a lot of people shadow over the game for like reasons of its aesthetic as opposed to it actually just really failing to live up to its own attempts at what it even wanted to do. Uh, and, and that was one of them, is that it built itself as being this huge, like, multi-branching path thing, but most of the bra- most of the branches actually just converge, and I think there's only, like, three endings. So even wow, though... that sounds like triangle strategy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So even though at the end of every... the Like, I think every single mission in that game actually has multiple... Uh, exits essentially that go to different levels but the thing is that what it really basically does is it just like the good ending of one level like, like let's say on the first level you have good bad neutral and then the second level uh, there's three different second levels but then the third level the bad if you if you did like good ending, bad ending versus uh, bad ending, good ending versus neutral ending, neutral ending. That brings you to the same mission every time. Yeah. Like all three of those paths take you to the same mission. So it's it's less of like a branching paths and more like you're just like you're incrementing. It's, your the, it's the diamond strategy. Yeah. Yeah. You're incrementing your sort of goodness counter up or down to change which of the stages at a certain depth of the tree that you're actually in. Which then, is like, it's not nothing, but it's not what it kind of built itself as. Yeah. And then just depending on the routes you took, you'll just either get the good, bad, or neutral ending. Exactly. Yeah. 
But then the other problem with it is that because of that, some of the like story that it was trying to tell was kind of like really weirdly incomprehensible. Yep. Uh, Because, you know, you'd make these decisions that are seemingly like a big deal, but then you can just cancel them out and everyone forgets it ever happened. And it's as if. Yeah. So anyway, it, it makes storytelling pretty difficult, I think. Yeah, like a a fair amount of games do that, you know, diamond-ish thing where, you know, you've got multiple branches like building, 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 and then at some point they just start trimming and down to a single point. Like Mass Effect 3 that did that, like where, you know, you have all these different like characters and stories lines going on, but once you got to the end, it was pick an ending. But yeah, anyway, I mean, the thing is, as you add more choices, if you make them meaningfully different for the rest of the game, you're just adding exponentially more work for yourself. Exactly. And so it's an incredibly difficult thing to like really commit to. Uh, I think the only, I think that the only sort of, you know, games, and of course some people might get upset even at calling them games that I've seen really commit to that are uh, visual novels, but obviously they're essentially just reusing a bunch of character art, and then just writing a story because it's a visual novel. And so you can get away with an immense amount of asset reuse in a visual novel that wouldn't really be as easily ignored. Yeah. In in a lot of in in like most, you know, more common genres. But I think that if a dev really committed to it, really committed to it and did a good job at it, that it would be like it even something as limited as what you know triangle strategy is doing where you have branching and then converging paths people still love it it's still very a very popular idea yeah you're allowed to stray from the beaten path but keep it within your sight at all times mhm like the only game that i can think of off the top of my head that isn't a joke answer for the that like did a branch that actually like changed a ton about the game is uh front mission three uh for the ps1 where like the first decision in that game that you have outside of i think like the tutorial mission is if you want you're stationed on a military base and your buddy's like hey do you want to come downtown and party with me and it's just like either stay on the military base or go out with your buddy that choice will put you on the two routes that the game has, and they're completely different the entire way through. <laughs> nice. They don't. They don't. They don't converge. And it's like that's an extremely inconsequential choice that leads to an extremely consequential uh, game change. And like it doesn't. Uh, well, yeah, it doesn't I, point out that that's what the route thing is. Even if you finish the game, it doesn't point that out. So I had no idea that game even had multiple routes the first time through. Yeah, I kind of love that, though, because that's that's the sort of thing that, you know, in the real world, you know, seemingly minor inconsequential decisions sometimes do have massively divergent outcomes, and you you, you wouldn't know. Yeah, just like how in um, the third uh, game in the Zero Escape series, Zero Time Dilemma, that game pretty much opens with the fact that a snail caused the apocalypse. <laughs> A snail caused some somebody to run left instead of right, and that changed everything. That set off a series of events that caused the apocalypse. And that's in like the first ten minutes of that game, so I'm not spoiling anything. Uh, 
But yeah, back to triangle strategy. One cool thing about the um, ideology kind of thing, though, is that they don't, it doesn't actually tell you anywhere until you get to New Game Plus how what any of the dialogue choices will do to your like conviction levels and how much they'll change them. You can suss it out by like staring at them and just be like, okay, that one's clearly, you know, the freedom option. That one's clearly the equality option. That one's clearly the idealism option. But like, it doesn't keep track of that for you. So you can never like go to a menu and see, okay, I'm definitely like, I've clearly answered the most in freedom. So I'm on track for that ending or whatever. Uh, so I think that's really cool where it's, it's a mechanic and it's not a mechanic because because it's not surface to the player. The player has to like kind of take better stock of how they're answering the questions because they can't refer to something that'll just tell them the fucking meter of yeah, of, I mean, of what their choices are. There's too many games that just give you dialogue options and it's like plus five goodness, you know, minus five, <laughs> or or even character will remember this. It's yeah. like. Just like clearly showing you, okay, these are the choices that matter in this specific way. Too many games put in morality systems that are just solely gameplay systems. They don't really matter to the story at all. And again, like I said, with Triangle Strategy, because it converges, it doesn't matter all that much. But some changes for the branches that you do take, like if I didn't know that they things converge, I would think, oh, these are extremely impactful and change a whole a whole hell of a lot. Uh, so I, I am kind of curious to start a new game plus to see how all that works. But at the same time, I put 40 hours into it and I'm just like, oh, I've got other shit I can play. And I guess one of the main reasons why I don't think I'll go back to it is I haven't talked about the combat at all. And I think the combat is just a bit too... It's a bit too simple as well as a bit too kind of, I don't know. There's a word for this that I'm not plucking at the moment, but things just take a little bit too long. Uh, it's like it like the combat's a bit slow paced. Like yeah, the pacing's not yeah. right. Yeah, and if the game had more in depth combat, in depth more in depth uh, character progression, especially. I'd be more into playing multiple playthroughs. But how the game works is that your characters gain experience based off of the level, like the battle that they're on. So if they're really underleveled, they'll gain experience really fast. But once they get to you know the proper level that it's supposed to be, they'll gain experience at snail's pace. Like one level over the recommended level for the battle, you'll start getting like for experience for killing an enemy whereas before you were in like 15 if you were the same level or like 30 if you were one level below and it just kept like stacking up there like I had one mission where I was like four levels under level with all my characters and the first action they did they got 100 experience and got level up because every, every, every level is 100 experience so the, because of the scaling there it's like there's kind of no reason not to use every character and just like rotate them around, which makes it less interesting for multiple playthroughs because in a game like Fire Emblem, I play multiple playthroughs of that game because it forces you to pick and choose your characters. You can't level up everybody equally or everybody will be too weak. You know, the other thing that I actually kind of dislike about that is that 
you mentioned that they've put in systems where the choices you make will literally cause some party members to leave. But if all your party members are about equally leveled, that choice doesn't really matter. Well, I mean, if if you don't know the cho- that is coming and like that was one of your clutch units and they walk out, that's a big problem. Well, that's though. what I, that's what I that's what I mean, though. It's more impactful, yes, but it's the it like I could see that that could turn people off. <laughs> really easily. This is why you can't make a game with a functional morality system because then the player will have to be confronted with the consequences of their actions. <laughs> like like just thinking about it, like if a developer actually made a meaningfully relevant uh morality system, players probably would hate it. <laughs> yeah. That's that's what Until Dawn was. It's, it's really difficult to actually save everybody in that game. You have to do extremely specific things. If you piss certain people off, they'll just get killed. But, think, it's, but it's supposed to be a slasher fix, so that's, so that's kind of what it's supposed to be. I think the first Let's Play I saw of that game, they accidentally saved everyone. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, that could happen. Like I said, I almost unlocked the secret, the secret true ending of this game my first playthrough through just because I happened to choose the right options at the right time except for torching a city I tried to fight that battle once without torching it but I lost very badly <laughs> so I'm like you know what I'm taking the easy way out I want to redo this map like three times to to get everything right oh and actually that's that's something I should point out is that when you lose a retreat from a map you keep all of the experience that you've gained so that makes it so that if you go back in you know it's it's easier and also makes it so with that scaling experience it's very easy if you're falling behind with any character just like go in do a few actions get your levels up and then either you know try for real or just continue playing in the mission maybe you'll finish it if you retreat from a mission does it affect the uh enemies at all like are there fewer enemies if you go back or do they just completely no it's, it's all the same you're basically just like starting it from the start. It plays all the same, you know, story dialogue in the mission at the same times and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't like. I know that was one of the things that, I, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before. That was one of the things I re- one of the things I really hated about Bioshock was the way that it encouraged this like annoying play style of chipping away at enemies, dying, but then they stay at that lower health and then you go chip away some more and die them again and it's a terrible terrible gameplay style I, I had completely forgotten about that aspect of Bioshock until I heard you talking about it on the podcast <laughs> then I remembered right I did just throw myself at them over and over again chipping them away and I it makes me want to play two to see if they took that out of two yeah and I don't know I mean Something about it doesn't sit right with me, but at the same time, if you are trying to design your game to be accessible to a wide audience, it's it's kind of like an automatic difficulty scaling system in in a way, almost. Yeah, and so and like I can't inherent I don't inherently think there's anything wrong with trying to scale difficulty to the player's actual skill level. Yeah, and like the the enemies like the battle resets when you go back into the battle. They don't have like 
Yeah, it's not. It's not like Bioshock. It's not. It's not like Bioshock. It's it's literally just experience. And and you're, and if you use items during the map, they reset to the totals yeah. that and, were before. And like you too. said, you can't really over level yourself very easily because of the scaling with the way that that system works. Yeah, like if it had proper experience, like just like linear experience growth, and they put in the system, it'd be broken as all hell. Um, so like in tandem, they work fine because like there were. Level matters a ton in this game, actually. Like, the other parts of the character progression, like, you can kind of add bonuses to the different weapons that your characters have equipped, but the bonuses are very small. So that um, aspect of, you know, progressing your characters, like, only a few of them seem to matter a, a ton. Whereas just, you know, getting them to the proper level, that mattered a lot more. Um... The actual like nuts and bolts of the combat, there's a huge emphasis on unit placement because if you hit a character from behind, it's an automatic critical hit. And if you're flanking an enemy and you attack them, then the person on the other side will also attack them at reduced strength. So it's it's got that going for it at least. So there's a little bit of depth there. It's not just straight. It's not just straight boring. There's something there. Uh, as well as what I mentioned a, lot, a little bit back where the terrain can be influenced by the magic that you use. Uh, and it's got a system where like each each like special ability costs a certain amount of tech points and those regenerate one per turn. And there's a couple characters that can manipulate that in weird ways. Uh, and then spells tend to cost like a lot, so your mages like they don't have constant uptime on their on their abilities. And magic's pretty powerful as a, as well. So like, the combat's like it's fairly balanced, and it does reward you like thinking about how you're actually playing. A lot of these missions, if I just went out recklessly, I get demolished. Whereas like ho- holding back and actually formulating a plan would bring me closer to victory. Because you know, like pretty much every strategy game, you're outnumbered and sometimes outgunned and. But you have a human mind as opposed to a computer mind. And the fucking AI in this game makes some really stupid decisions at times. Like, this boss character that can run up and literally one-shot my mage, he's just going to retreat for no reason. Huh? <laughs> that, was, that was nice of them. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's kind of simple, but it, it's serviceable. It's, it's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, the way you talk about it, though, how it's... It's just not as as deep and interesting as you want it to be. Like, just doesn't, doesn't quite feel like as engaging as you'd like. That really, in my mind, that that that's the worst sin a game can make, is having its core systems not be up to snuff. Yeah, like it it okay. I'll say that it was good enough to propel me to finish the game. I don't know if I'd go and do a, uh, like a new game plus or anything like that because it just kind of feels like it might be a slog to get through it to see the juicy story bits that I missed. That's the main thing. Like if I if I could do a like in, you know, a, but it's not it's not the sort of game where you know you might be able to be rewarded for trying like a totally different strategy because you chose a different set of characters like in Fire Emblem. Like, I mean, you can do that with just choosing a different set of characters per battle because they're all at the same level, but that's that's a little bit less... 
Like, there's less investment in any of those individual characters from a gameplay perspective because you can just interchange them. Whereas in something like Fire Emblem or Final Fantasy Tactics, you kind of you commit to the characters that you have, and if they don't work out for a situation, then you just you have to think about how to make them work out for a situation. So I, I yeah. Would you say it's a good introduction for someone who's not very good at strategy RPGs like myself? I think I think it probably would be actually. Um, if you if you play on like there's four difficulty settings. I played on normal, which is the second highest. So and I did have some missions that were like definitely that that, that took me two tries. Like. There, there were a fair few missions actually that required me to take two tries. So I think like somebody coming to it and maybe playing on the easy, like the second lowest difficulty. I think I think the lowest difficulty is like story difficulty. <laughs> Naturally, a lot of games are doing that these days. Like I think it would be a a solid introduction to to the genre, and I do think that the story parts of the game, the decisions that they pose to the player. And the consequences of those decisions and the whole ideology system. I think that's all very well done, except for the part where the story converges and your choices don't make as much impact as I wish they did until the like last one. Um, like some examples of that is, you know, I talked about S Frost like embodying freedom or whatever. Well, that just lead that's led them to a position where they have a bunch of opportunistic bastards that are crushing the weak and using you know their status to just like keep themselves afloat so there's a massive power imbalance in the society there i mentioned how hyzant is all about equality except i didn't mention that they have a race of people that they use as slave labor to harvest all of their salt so that's how they kind of get the equality out of it. Yes. <laughs> Class, just, classic equality, just you know, just the, like the kind of America was built off of. The classic, uh, it's the classic Greek sort of democracy there. Yeah. So like, nothing the game presents, like the game presents everything as shades of gray. Nothing's black and white. Like, pretty much every decision, every major decision that you make comes with a downside of some sort even if it sounds like the right thing to do so i think that the game like i mean because the game does a really good job presenting that because the game is always in control of that it's like it's never like any of these are procedurally generated or anything like that like it's very defined but it it does work well what doesn't work well though is okay so i've got a bone to pick with the art style of this game it's doing what square has been calling the 2D HD style of graphics, which is basically we have pixel art, but it's in a 3D engine, so we can do particle effects and weird water effects and shit like that. I think this. I think um, the first game that they really did this with was, was Octopath Traveler. I think that game looks incredible because there's no rotating camera. <laughs> oh no! The 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 uh, landscapes that you're in are presented as these like dioramas pretty much. And it's, you know, fixed camera angles. There's like, you know, zooming in and out based on where you are and like panning and stuff like that, but never rotation. And things look very, very good there. A lot of the scenes are very well set up to look very pretty and visually striking. It, from the little bit of it I've played, it does look very nice. Yeah, but triangle strategy 
because you can rotate the camera, like it, it just starts looking awkward because the characters are just like billboards. So like you rotate the camera 45 degrees and they just kind of like, like after you get a certain point, they just like go to a different perspective on the character sprite. There's not really good transition there. And so you have a freely rotating camera. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. They, yeah, I wonder if they would have taken a an approach. I wonder if they would have taken an approach where the camera can be rotated only in forty five degree increments or something. Yeah, but I mean, unless they unless they snapped to those angles, it wouldn't solve the problem because I think it rotating in motion oh, well, looks that's, bad. That's what I mean. Like <laughs> like keeping the camera uh, like snapped to specific angles, kind of like think uh, think like Roller Coaster Tycoon. Yeah, that classic <laughs> that classic PC game which has camera rotations but only like uh, yeah I guess it does 90 degrees at a time yeah you're switching cameras instead of moving a camera yeah. pretty much um and also this game chugs like a motherfucker this game does oh. not perform well in in a lot of situations which is wild to me it's literally pixel art on billboards and occasionally like it's like the particle effects that draw it down and like if there's too much grass they like they render too much grass. They render like they render the grass waving like too much, and especially when you're rotating, the game starts chugging. Unreal Engine at its finest. <laughs> there, there weren't any issues like that in Octopath. Octopath or... ran ran great the entire time. There was, I think, there might have been a little bit of slowdown in battles, but that just kind of reminded me of old games where like the slowdown was almost its own reward. <laughs> like you were fucking shit up so hard that the game like slowed down a little bit. Or like the flickering in Mega Man. <laughs> like, yeah, there's too much shit going on right now. The game's just going to slow down a little bit. Well, Octopath made it to PC. Maybe a triangle strategy will too. Maybe it'll run a bit better there. Yeah, like... I... I <laughs> hoping that the PC port has better performance. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like the Switch is an underpowered platform. Ugh. A uh, dedicated console version would be great. <laughs> so, overall, I think the game... It's actually very similar to my thoughts on Octopath Traveler in that it sets out to do something. It sets out to have a, like, game framework that's extremely interesting. Like, Octopath was you had eight characters that you could pick from and recruit in any order that you wanted. It was very non-linear in that way but as a consequence of that like as a consequence of that nothing had consequence your characters that you recruit barely interacted because it's possible you know you might not have a certain character at a certain time in the early game and the stories didn't intermingle at all like it when you were on the specific character stories the other characters didn't show up except for little skits that where they would just like talk like four lines to each other it was like an unrealized potential is why I'd say for that game. And I'd say the same thing about Triangle Strategy. Which I would assume are... I would assume, are they just general lines that just, like, any character can say, depending on what your party is? No, in in Octopath, they're at least specific, like, okay, this character is 100% talking to this character. Oh, okay. But, like, they were... Those skits were dependent on who you had in your active party at that time when you were on these character events after these specific events so like you could just see nothing with some of those if you had the a weird party that just didn't have any of those in it so 
Like, if you have a gigantic party of characters, the thing I want is interaction between them, camaraderie, like characters inter- interacting. It's why Smash Bros. Brawl is the best Smash Bros. Because the subspace emissary mode has them actually interacting with each other. Those cutscenes are great. Exactly. So, overall, for a triangle strategy, I think it's a fine game. Like, I'd probably give it a 7 out of 10. And my 10-point scale is fairly harsh compared to most fucking game publications oh, and stuff. Oh, because you use the whole scale? Yes. <laughs> it's because I say, 7 is good. It's not 8 is terrible, <laughs> like most places. Um, Like, I... Like, maybe wait for, like, a PC port and a sale. Like, I think it's a fine game. I think it's not worth uh, full price. Because... Again, like, it's... I did get, you know, 40 hours out of it, but, like, the game chugs. I think there's unrealized potential in the way it, the game is constructed. I think that it's not particularly deep enough for multiple playthroughs. It feels... It feels like a smaller game. It feels like a game that would have came out on, like, the DS or the GBA. Uh, it Like, it doesn't feel like this, this needed to be a full-price console game, which is, you know... I say that a lot about games on the Switch. Uh, so I feel like the the there's a bit of a hole in the market on on Switch specifically in terms of like the price points, and I I, I don't know what's up with that. Yeah, because like some stuff like um, like I, I th- we were actually just talking about this last night about how there's a lot of stuff on the Switch that is really just more expensive than it probably should be. And the game that I used as an example was uh, Crypt of the Necrodancer, which I have not played, but I have heard is a very, very good game. And you can buy it in a physical store for as high as $60 uh, somehow because it's a Switch on Switch, whereas I think I saw it on sale for like $2 on Steam recently. Could that have been a version that was bundled with the uh, Zelda Necrodancer game? No, it wasn't even that. Wow. It wasn't even that. It was it was the bare, just Switch version of Crypt of the Necrodancer yeah, for physical, $60. Physical version. For a physical cartridge. Mm. Brand new, but, but like, still, yeah. like, that's way, way too much. For, and like and for like that. you were you saw that on like Best Buy dot C A or something Buy. like that. Yeah, yeah, Best so, Buy so I don't even think it it was like it, like I can see that price for like one of those like limited run physical versions of games. Like, like I I think the Hades on Switch, the physical version of that, it's, you know, it's more than you're you're spending on a, a digital version, but it comes with like cool shit. Yeah. Now to be fair, the downloadable version of the same uh, version of that game on Nintendo's eShop was only twenty dollars. Uh, but it's pretty weird that the digital downloads twenty dollars. And at the same time, the physical copy is between forty and sixty, and but also, you could just go on Steam and get the same game, and then it's one tenth of the price on sale because Steam sales are amazing. And I think that that's like for a lot of indie games, like I I often buy them on sale on Steam, and there's really nothing comparable on Switch. Yep. Yeah, and even even on most consoles, most consoles don't do sales nearly on the level of of this of uh, Steam or other digital platforms. Yeah, 
like hum- humble also has like some pretty pretty big sales sometimes too yeah i mean between humble bundles and steam sales and just random packages of games i mean I have <laughs> even just third-party sites where you can just buy steam keys yeah like i have well, more that gets into weird weird shit though yeah, so those aren't legal but anyway point gray is, market gray market the, the point is that yeah there's a there's a bit of a there's a bit of a hole in the in the market on uh, on switch and perhaps consoles in general where like you just can't get a game at sort of the price that it might be on other plat like on PC platforms, which is yeah, De- definitely that. Um, there's al- there's also a weirdness where like certain games just are more expensive than I think they ought to be. Um, you know, we were talking about the Pokemon Diamond and Pearl remakes. Like those games were originally forty dollars on the DS. It doesn't sound like they changed a whole lot, and now they're eighty dollars Canadian on Switch. Yeah. And like Advance Wars One Plus Two, uh, that's going to be eighty dollars as well. But the um, Great Ace Attorney Chronicles, which is you know two games that were released, I think on like 3ds in Japan, like that, those are together are like fifty for some reason. And then there's also the Ace Attorney uh, Remastered trilogy. Yeah, like those are three, that I think that's like maybe. 40? I think that, I think it's 40. Yeah, like certain certain collections of games are like you know, fairly reasonably priced, but these like remakes that Nintendo is putting out that don't really change anything, like every Nintendo game comes out at f- full price these days. It's the Nintendo tax. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny to me. It's almost as if like there's price discrimination going on, but it's in sort of the opposite direction that you'd expect because consoles are a cheaper way to play video games in terms of the hardware than a gaming PC, right? But the games are way cheaper on PC. Yeah. And, and, well, and like, I, I don't know if like, that's just the businesses all figure that, you know, console owners are less sensitive to the cost of, well, the, of the game. They're also less savvy. Like how, how, how many problems have we had playing PC games where they just don't run or don't work properly for some dumb reason? Like Maximus switched to Windows 11, and all of his games are f- fucked now. Yeah, huge mistake. Uh, if you take anything from this podcast, do not upgrade to Windows 11. He can't play Elden Ring. He can't play Risk of Rain 2. I think he had problems with that other game he was playing. Like everything's crashing. All his games crash now. Either either crashing or or just like randomly minimizing. So yeah. and, <laughs> and in a game like Elden Ring, randomly minimizing means you died. <laughs> so yeah, like you know, wait for a sale on Triangle Strategy if you're interested, or if you have if you have money to burn. Uh, otherwise, maybe play a different game, like one that one of the many games that Matt has been playing in the last few weeks. Uh, yeah, I, I've been playing a couple. Uh, most of the time, it's been going into Elden Ring though. Um, I've been enjoying it, but there is so much in that game that it's kind of overwhelming and I've needed to take some breaks to play other stuff. <laughs> um, how, how's the experience going back to Elden Ring after taking those breaks? Uh, it's not too bad because I'm, okay. I mean, the breaks, I'm not taking too long of breaks because mm. I don't want to get rusty. Yeah. Um, 
But I think, you know, sometimes taking a short break from a game, I find that my skill goes up just because you get weirdly, you get weirdly frustrated with a game sometimes. And you're like, oh, yeah, no, especially a soul. Yeah, especially like the amount of times that I felt that I was like, fuck this puzzle in the witness. I'm going to sleep. Woke up and solved in like a minute and a half. Just like some about sleep, man. It's pretty good. Yeah. And there, I mean, I've had like sleep is where you learn <laughs> in the souls likes I have played. I've had some situations like that where I get stuck on a boss. I take a break, put down till the next day. And then like first or second try, I get it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I've, I've been enjoying the game, but it, the open I, I actually really like the open world in this. It I think it plays well with the souls like mentality of. Like, you could just accidentally wander into an area that's way over-leveled for you. Ah, uh, uh, yes. The same thing I experienced playing Final Fantasy 2. Where, <laughs> where I would walk one tile and I would get into endgame enemies with no warning. Five minutes into the game. Um, I but, mean, to be fair, like, it is sort of suspect when... Like, think about a Pokemon game. Why are all the Pokemon near the starting town really low level but all the pokemon near the ending towns are high level because it's a video game not real life (laughs) video games are supposed to be fun (laughs) (laughs) and i mean not just the pokemon too but the trainers do they all start from the same town yeah it's just like you you just have in the pokemon games you just have the best luck that you start in a town that's like just youngsters and bug catchers (laughs) get them People whose biggest concern is uh, how comfy their shorts are. And and what percentile their ratatas are in. (laughs) Answer, the top percentile. So, um, Matt, like, what's your background with, like, the Souls games? Um, the first one I played was Dark Souls on the 360. I never finished it on there. Um, but then I, when I got my PS4, I got Bloodborne. And that is my favorite Souls-like. Um, I love Bloodborne. Um, after that, I played 3. Uh, I tried some of 2. I, I don't <laughs> I don't care for 2 because you can tell it was made by a different team just because of how different it feels. And I don't like how it feels compared to Dark Souls 1 and 3. Um, but then I did eventually beat Dark Souls 1 via the right re, the, the remastered version. Right. Um, and I did, I did play a bit of Sekiro. Um, that game is all about parries and I suck with parry timing, so I never finished that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I enjoy... Mm, I don't know if enjoy is the right (laughs) I I like the challenge or over I don't don't know there's a satisfaction you get beating a tough boss or getting through a tough area in them that I enjoy but I have to be in the right mood to play them right so I don't play them too often but it Without when Elden Ring came out, it had been a while since I last played one, so I decided to 
jump on. I was initially thinking of waiting for a sale, but I just decided to jump it on board because this is actually the first time I'm going into a Souls-like without having seen a full Let's Play of it first. Mm. So I'm basically going in completely blind. Yeah. And, and like, now's, like, these games are weird where release is, like, the optimal time to play them just because of the kind of community uh, discovery aspects that go on with the game. Yeah, like, I think just, I think just yesterday or the day before, you were posting something in our Discord <laughs> about a wall that you had to hit with a sword, like, 30 times in a row to break it. Yeah, that someone I, had just discovered, and like that—that's that is some incredible. Uh, I, that's some incredible trolling on the devs, honestly. I, I think looking into it afterward, I think it's actually a bug. Okay. Um, I don't think that's intended. Um, it's not a bug. It's an unexpected feature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, there is. This might just be a me problem with Elden Ring, but from previous Souls-likes, I've developed this habit of, as I go through an area, just checking every corner for any potential items. Right, and now this is an open world. So it's taking me a long time to explore the world. I've got over 60 hours in at this point, and I feel like I've still got a long way to go. Wow. Yeah, I mean... I, I'll, I'll, man, I do that even in games where there's literally nothing, basically. Like, I think I was talking about It Takes Two and how I kept, even in the, like, late stages of that that game, I was still, like, just, like, trying to get in the corners. I'm like, there has to be something. I was doing that in Triangle Strategy. There's portions where you explore a little area, and there's these little glimmers of secret items that you can pick up. And I'm, so I'm just, like, rubbing against every single... Uh, wall that I can find to just like see okay this one there this one there I mean it's funny like I know sometimes if I'm playing a game and someone who's not familiar with a lot of video game conventions is watching me like a family member or something I'll just like <laughs> bust open a, I'll just bust open a secret wall and they're like what how did you know to look there and I mean sometimes it's because this wall was slightly different the texture was subtly a different shade of brown <laughs> or something like that. But then other times it's like, no, I'm just hitting stuff randomly because I know. It's that rock in the background of the Looney Tunes cartoon that you know is going to fall. That's just <laughs> colored a little differently. Yeah. Or like that door in Scooby-Doo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's always so funny to me that in older cartoons, you could just tell everything that was going to move because it was a brighter shade. Yeah, it's just like background artist versus animator. Yeah. Like, you think they would fix that. That shouldn't be that difficult to just adjust the colors. I eh. I have no idea what anime this is from, but there's like this old clip from a show that actually played with that. Oh. And that the characters were actually like, no, I'm not stepping on there. That's that's colored differently. I know what's going to happen. And then the ground they're already standing on is what collapses. <laughs> oh, no. That's a good joke. That's a solid bit. That's a good... Yeah. I'll, see if, I'll have to find that clip for Yeah. You. Yeah. Just, just t- taking a genre-savvy protagonist down a peg 
that's always always great. Yeah, that's good. So so yeah, en- enjoying it though. Enjoying yeah. Ring. Okay. Um, but I've been enjoying. I'll, I'll talk. I'll probably talk about it more once I've actually completed it in. Right. I don't know. Four months. <laughs> <laughs> so look forward to that. In four months. Um, in, in August. <laughs> But yeah, I've been playing some other stuff in the meantime too. Um, I always fall back on some uh, trusty Apex Legends. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of some newer stuff, I've been playing a bit of uh, King of Fighters four or fifteen. <laughs> um, really fun. Nice. Um, the first uh, additional character pack actually just came out, um, but I haven't touched anyone in it because uh, I just keep playing Terry. I mean, yeah, that's kind of the thing with King of Fighters. But the first pack did have Rock, so I know some people who uh, jumped on that. Hmm. Um, I also completed my first Sonic game. It's not the first Sonic game I've played, but it's the first one I've completed. Uh, Sonic Mania. Ah, Sonic Mania. Yes, we've talked about that a lot on the podcast. <laughs> And uh, we still have a video that I... I it, It's you know, never going to happen. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, for the nail of the coffin. I'm going to delete it off the Google Drive. It, yeah. I uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it's... it's I, I really liked it as well. I haven't actually finished it yet. I kind of am distracted with A, a zillion games, and B, university. <laughs> yeah. The old, the old Meatloaf song comes to mind. Two out of three ain't bad. Because <laughs> I didn't like it myself. But um, yeah, I mean, it's very much a classic. Sonic it's a classic game. Sonic game. One hundred percent is a classic Sonic game. Like it, it has all of the um, all of the good and bad that that entails. <laughs> I uh, I actually have an itch now to try out some more classic Sonic games, but uh, I think I'm going to hold off on that because. Um, I forget how long ago they announced it, but they announced a collection that is Sonic 1, 2, 3, and Knuckles in CD. Okay. Um, I mean, that's pretty solid. Now, there's been lots of collections with Sonic games, but my hopes for this one, because they haven't said much about it, I'm hoping that 1 and 2 in it are actually uh, ports of the remastered mobile versions. Oh. And because I've only heard fantastic things about those versions, I tried playing a bit of the first one, but I just cannot get into touchscreen controls for something like that. No, I yep. hate their um, virtual controllers always the worst. Virtual controllers on touchscreens are a mistake. So I'm hoping that maybe the that three knuckles and CD will end up getting that same treatment for that uh, collection if that is the route they go with it. Because I'd really be interested in checking that out when that comes out. All right. Uh, cool. Oh yes, and yesterday the new the the first wave of the Mario Kart Eight booster pack came out. Yeah, um, that was a wild announcement. Yeah, it's like everybody's like, "Oh yeah, Mario Kart Nine, Mario Kart Nine, Mario Kart Nine. When's it coming out?" Nope, we're releasing an insane amount of tracks for Mario Kart Eight. We, we are announcing. I mean, Mario Kart Eight was already pretty like pretty comprehensive this pack adds as many tracks as was already in the game it doubles what? the amount of How, tracks yeah i haven't been keeping up with this announcement but that is insane because that Four. game already had 12 cups yeah um and all for the low price of i think it was about 32.99 canadian 
that's i mean for if that's like i think it comes in just under a hundred tracks once it's all all is said and done that is completely fair honestly that like that's a lot it's it's mostly fair because this is for the switch version which is still eighty dollars yeah but I mean, like, if you add that and the DLC together, like, that's starting to look like a reasonable purchase. Yeah. Um, yeah, in one sitting, I three-starred both of the new cups on 50, 100, 150, and mirror. <laughs> what about 200, CC? Um, I haven't done 200 for any of the cups. Good. I, <laughs> I'm just waiting to try and do that all at once. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. <laughs> um... So the first two, uh, the first two cups that added um, are the Golden Dash Cup and the Lucky Cat Cup. <laughs> Lucky Cat Cup. <laughs> the uh, Golden Dash Cup features Paris Promenade from Mario Kart Tour, Toad Circuit from 3DS, Choco Mountain from N64, there and we go. Coconut Mall from the Wii. Oh, fucking Coconut Mall! God damn it. <laughs> Um, the Lucky Cat Cup adds Tokyo Blur from Tour, Shroom Ridge from DS, Sky Garden from GPA. Oh, nice. And Ninja Hideaway from Tour. So they're even bringing tracks from Mario Kart Tour into this, which, um... Yeah, that's the arcade one, right? No, uh, that's... No, that, that's the mobile app where, um... Oh, I'm thinking GP. It, yeah. it, it's the mobile app where Diddy Kong costs more than this whole map pack. <laughs> What? Worth it. <laughs> um, but there's actually... I, I saw people calling it a uh, data mine, saying that they, they, they've found some of the other courses coming, but what it really is is just people were looking closely at the promotional image they have for this oh. and just seeing what other maps are on there. Um, I, I, I didn't see any signs of Waluigi Pinball, unfortunately, but it could be covered up, hopefully, okay, okay. or not included in this, but... Well, also, Cowards. how many, how many tracks are left That's a for lot. them to announce? <laughs> um, as long as they gotta bring back Delfino Plaza, that's the best map in any Mario Kart. So there's, so there's still 40 more tracks, because this only brought eight 40 more opportunities 40. to snub yeah. Waluigi. Um, <laughs> not but, like they did uh, more. There's actually one track that uh, some people spotted that's uh, local to us, and that's Vancouver Velocity. What? From Mario Kart Tour. All right. <laughs> sure. It better be good. <laughs> uh, I, I haven't played it myself. I've I barely played any tour. I tried just a little bit, but uh, I would hope the Vancouver map will be. Is Vancouver Velo- Velocity just being stuck on shitty one-way streets and almost hitting pedestrians? <laughs> Um, no, now it's also getting stuck in suburban neighborhoods because the city refuses to upzone anything. Is there just constant construction, but different? Is it like the Animal Crossing map with the different seasons, but it's just different parts of the uh, level are under construction at any one time? I mean, all I can tell you is I'm pretty sure the Olympic torch is in there. <laughs> I think you drive by it. If, uh, if it's in if it's in winter, no one can drive. Yeah, yeah. There's unfortunately no snow tires for your Mario Kart. No, we got button tires and foam tires and whatever. <laughs> uh, I'm a super slick kind of guy myself. Mm. 
come on, you don't want like the rail or rail uh sorry, not railroad actually they do have railroad wheels, don't they? They might. They might. <laughs> Think so. They definitely have wagon wheels though. Yeah. The wagon mm, delicious. Like, like uh that Lego racer car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that thing was <laughs> something. Yeah, I mean it's more Mario Kart tracks. Yeah. Um, and Mario Kart A controls very well. And that's good good stuff as far uh, as I'm concerned. Of yeah. course, I, I have still seen people online getting angry because the tracks don't look as good. As um, what? As the all the other tracks in Mario Kart because they went for a bit of a different art style. I, I think it's more so because they're just I think the well, reason retro. why Yeah. But they're I, all retro or from a mobile game. Why why would they like do a ton of work to their mobile game assets that already and, probably look fine? And at the price they're offering these at, mm-hmm. I, I I think it's reasonable. I mean, this is this is one of the things that I've always thought that Nintendo doesn't do enough of, is just like releasing DLC for games that are extremely solid. And I mean Mario Kart 8, in fairness, they actually did release DLC. That was a good DLC. On uh, on the Wii U version of Mario Kart 8. And then the Switch great. version. And then the Switch version just had them bundled in. Yeah. Um and that sounds like a reasonable price considering. I mean Yeah, it's just that some of some of Nintendo's games just like wouldn't work fantastically for DLC. I I'm think. not saying every single game, but like there there are some games that I like just, Animal Crossing's been getting DLC. I'm still uh, upset that there was never any DLC for Nintendo Land because that game. I mean, yeah, that game <laughs> that was a crime. Was some of the mini games in that were incredible. They just need more maps. Yeah, just more maps. Like the, the the game mechanics in that game were incredible, but they just needed more maps. They never did anything with it, though. It's a crime. Asymmetric multiplayer is so neglected. <laughs> yeah, that's. Basically what I've been playing lately. All right, cool. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I've been playing sort of like a, a random assortment of stuff. I actually recently acquired a Switch, and so I've been playing a bit of uh, Pokemon Legends Arceus, a little bit of Mario Odyssey, Super Mario Odyssey? Super Mario Odyssey. Yep. Super Mario Odyssey, yeah. Um, both fairly solid about what I expect from Nintendo. We talked about Arceus already. Last episode? Last episode, believe it or not. Yeah, I mean, it is a recent release. And then, um, yeah, what else? A lot of a lot of Risk of Rain 2 lately, actually. Yeah, because the Survivors of the Void expansion came out. And that's that's some pretty good that's some pretty good DLC for the for the game. Now that they fixed a couple things, yes. <laughs> I will agree. There were some there were there were there were some bugs, yeah. <laughs> And some balance changes that they really need to make. Like the void fog. Yeah. It's less painful now. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, like they the that expansion they added two new survivors, uh three like three new uh l- levels for like the main loop as well as like a a new bonus kind of ending to it. Yeah, a new secret level. Of sorts, yeah, ton of new items. A lot, a lot of them are pretty are pretty cool. Actually, a whole new, not just new items, but a whole new class of items. The void items that corrupt your other items that you already have. So they you you pick them up, and then all your items of one type get turned into this corrupted version that can be an entirely different play style. It's 
it's, it's a really cool addition. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I had like a huge stack of bustling fungus and I corrupted it. So instead of standing still and healing when I was running. Oh, yeah. The corrupted fungus is incredible, especially on characters that run a lot, like Huntress. I accidentally got that when I was playing Engineer with Stationary Turrets the other day. Oh. I was like, oh, Weeping Fungus is so much better than Bustling Fungus. Wait. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> my, my turrets that were previously unkillable are now extremely killable. Yeah, that's like the one situation where it's like just a strict downgrade. Yeah. But yeah, that's been super fun. I I'm Honestly, I, I want to just keep playing more of it. I've been playing some solo runs, some trying to complete the Eclipse mode. Which stacks difficulty higher and higher the more runs you complete with the specific characters. That's been in for a while, but trying it with the new characters is... I haven't been able to beat it yet. Yeah, and then they added the new wave mode as well. Mm-hmm. That's a bit different. It's very... I mean, it's still the same like characters and stuff, but very different sort of game loop. Yeah, because like, insta- like, the, the greatest enemy in Risk of Rain 2 is time. Yeah, but the wave <laughs> mode actually is untimed. Well, th- there is a time limit where the uh, circle that you're in gets smaller if you don't complete the wave in time. But we only came up with that problem once when, like, an enemy spawned on the other side of a cliff yeah, and we couldn't get to it. But they not, fixed that, apparently. It's not a huge... I mean, it, it killed it's us. Nowhere near, <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, it, it's nowhere near as, as aggressive in its uh, its time pressure, the, the new wave mode. But anyway... Yeah, it lots of fun. Risk of Rain 2 is already super solid, and so... It probably would have been the game of our year had it come out in 2021 instead of 2020. Yeah, we've been playing it for too long. <laughs> I've, I've got over 200 hours into in that game. But yeah, it's always it's always welcome when a, a great game that you've been playing for a while gets uh, new DLC. That's right, Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably... I, I've also been playing The Other Wilds, which we talked about... Oh, right. right. We talked about that right. on our game, game of our year episode. And I gotta say, um, I haven't I, I haven't fully finished it yet. Uh, so I don't want to talk about it too much. And also, we're not going to spoil it because the game's incredible. Go play it. Hard disagree. <laughs> I don't like that game. We fucked up. <laughs> uh, l- l- okay, here's the thing. That game should be all about all about my. I should be all about that game, but it's got two things I don't like. And if I only had to deal with one of them, I probably would keep playing the game. But dealing with both of them, I can't do it. One controls. It's got you know thrust based controls. I kind of hate thrust based controls. I mean, it's a I, space I, I, game. I know. You're I still the hate them. Space. <laughs> I also don't think the movement's not that great when, when you're on the specific plans. But the other thing is, um, I'll, I'll admit uh, that like I can I can understand why the controls would be frustrating. Yeah, uh, like I, I found them frustrating. Like they're probably fine. Somebody who like likes thrust controls. Like I, I've hated thrust controls since Lunar Lander. Okay. I think that this, so. <laughs> see, see, and I, I'm fine with thrust controls. And I think that this game actually has one. I think it's one of the best actually like thrust controlling based games that I've ever played. The first time I went off the planet, I accidentally went into the sun. 
That is a rite of passage. <laughs> that is a rite of passage in this game, okay? Yeah. And if you haven't flung yourself into the sun at least once, you... <laughs> well, I, I... More than once. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and the other thing is... Okay. I don't think this is actually a spoiler because the store page for this game says that this happens. And now we've all played it, so we all know this happens. Time loops. I can't stand these things. I was like in the middle of fucking exploring an area and it fucking it time looped on me. And I said, that's it. Like it was the third time at time. I'm like, that's it. I'm done. Like, I, I just I just don't want to deal with it anymore. I don't want to deal with these controls I hate to get to this area with also controls I hate. It was the gas giant. Okay. And like navigating that is a huge pain in the ass. And I finally found something. I'm like, okay, finally. All right. I got like halfway through figuring out like, a little bit about time loop. And I was like, God damn it. And it sucks because there's a, a lot of stuff in there. Like I was super intrigued by the world and the state of it. Um, like yeah. there, there was that, like, there's, you know, a couple other members of the space uh, team that are out and about. And I'm like, I want to find these people and talk to them and talk about what the state of the world is. And there's one that's in a very weird spot that I'm like, okay, how did this happen? I want to figure out how this happened. But it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going back to that. I've got, I've got too many games to play to, uh, to deal with something that is going to frustrate me every 18 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I didn't, I didn't mind that at all, personally. I think yeah, it, that's that's just going to come down to personal preference. Yeah, like, yeah I like, hate time pressure in games. Like for me, has put in just, over two hundred hours into Risk of Brand. <laughs> that's why I've never played like Dead Rising. Like that that game just seems stressful to me because there's constant time ticking. But yeah, I mean, I I I think that it works well, personally. But yeah, everyone's going to have different opinions on that. I think that some games if you got rid of the time pressure, it completely changes the game. Like, the biggest... Uh, That's the thing. I mean, yes, totally. I don't think that would change the Outer Wilds all that much. Mm. Like, the time... I guess well, the one thing the time loop does for you is it resets you to a point so that you can, like, take stock of the information you have again and then set off in a potentially different direction. I think... That's very smart. Okay, so... I think that's good design in, in a lot of respects, actually. I... But it's not for me. One thing I will say about it that... One thing I will say about, about what makes it interesting in that game is that there's actually... There are things that it does with some of the puzzles and I'm kind of being vague because I don't want to like okay. give it away too much but uh, the timing matters on events happening in the game and Great. you would not be able to do that you would not be able to do that without the time of aspect at all yeah. uh, but you know you're not even going to quite you're not even kind of you're not even going to understand like what is going on with those like it, it it's later on that you understand how those parts of the game even work yeah like obviously if you're doing a time loop you do that it's like a big part of the game matters, but like a, i also hated majora's mask yeah. <laughs> fuck that shit but like a big part of the game like there is a part of the game that is learning the game's mechanics to be able to use them but you are not even aware that these mechanics exist at the beginning of the game. And so it's the exploration and discovery of 
the game's mechanics itself and it relates to the way that it works through that sort of time loop thing. And I don't think you could do that without it. You could do like you could do some things kind of without it. It's not like it's impossible, but I, I do think that it would be a very different game with without it. And I also think that it ties thematically into the into the sort of story of what's happening very well. And the story like the story relies on the time loop. It mm-hmm. simply the, the story of that game literally does not work without the time loop. It just yeah. doesn't. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think you can get you cannot get rid of the, you cannot get rid of the time loop uh in, in that game at all. Now you could make a game with some similar themes, ideas, and mechanics without the time loop. Like, I can't remember. I think I might have said one of the games that I'm actually reminded of the most by Outer Wilds is actually Myst, even though Myst has almost nothing in common on the surface <laughs> other than... Yeah. Like, but the thing about Myst and the Outer Wilds that they share in common is that they're both very much like discovery of how a game works... That is, and the game, then the way the game works is wildly different than anything else you've ever played. And that's sort of the, the through line there is it's, it's less about the details of what they're doing and more just like the sort of ways in which the game reveals itself to you is what I'm going to (laughs) say. Um, but anyway, I can understand the frustration though. Uh, although I would also posit that some of the frustration with the time loop is like very much kind of intentional. Uh, like it's supposed you're supposed to feel a little, a when, little bit when frustrated. people are intentionally frustrating me. I don't be around those people anymore. It's not, fru- it's not meant to be frustrating though. It's just it's meant to like give you a sense of urgency. Yeah, I, I, I never found it frustrating. If, if I, like I didn't if find it. I, yeah, like I didn't find it frustrating, but I definitely found myself being like, okay, I have to go, I have to I, focus. I have to go right back there. I can do it faster now. Yeah. I can get more out of this run. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I understand the layout. I understand the geography. I know what I'm looking for. You know, I can do it this time, even though I failed last time because I ran out of time. Yeah, but I, no, I, I still really, really dislike it. Because like, if the point is to explore and you're putting a time limit on that exploration, how am I supposed to be able to take the time to take in my individual like environments that I'm in fully before moving on? Like, it, I just, it's just like constantly putting, putting you back and then having to go back out and go to these areas again. I just could not stand it. Anyway. But that, that whatever, I'm... I'm being a bit dismissive of it, but it's just not my thing. Anyway, we might uh, in the future do a spoiler cast of, of, yeah. of the Outer Wilds. So if, if you're sick of us talking about the Outer Wilds super vaguely, uh, look forward to that potentially. Let us know, perhaps with an email at angrysunzone at outlook.com. Or, or, or a, perhaps a Twitter uh, post. Yes, or direct message. message. Get into our DMs. Slide right in there with that spoiler cast request at Angry Sun Zone on Twitter. You can check out our YouTube channel for various videos. We recently put up a tier list on which Halo weapons are the best for house defense. So go check that out at Angry Sun Zone on YouTube. Yeah, we will. Gi- I will give you a spoiler for that video. The rocket launcher is not. Shh. 
No spoilers. Like, the name of the video is How Good Are Rockets at Home Defense? You can't just give them that right away. <laughs> now we can There's say... There's no way that the listeners could, in, could understand. That's, they need our expert analysis. What we can say is the Ravager is a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so check that out. Uh, also look forward to... We, we got a video in the pipeline about uh, NVIDIA Canvas, the AI-assisted art craziness that NVIDIA has put out with their uh, latest line of RTX cards. So, I'd say it's a tool, but it's probably more of a toy at this point. Yeah, so it's... It, we, it's we still have, in beta. Yeah, we had a lot of fun uh, creating sick art with that thing, so check it out once we post that. And, you know, join the conversation. That's all we can say. Like, share, subscribe, all that jazz. Bye, everybody. Smash that airplane. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>